It has often been said, and rightly so, that Christians have three enemies. Those three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three are very real, and all three are very powerful. Let me briefly describe each in reverse order from the way I just listed them. First, the devil. The devil is a real being, and he is our personal enemy. He is not a figment of the imagination. He is not an invented figure. Tragically, there are many people who do not believe in a real, personal devil. They would say that to believe such a notion is an immature mindset. After all, they say, only kids believe in a devil with a pointed tail, pointed ears, and a pitchfork. Others say that Satan is not really a person. He is just a symbol of evil. He doesn't actually exist, they say. It's just a figure of speech to symbolize evil. Others say that Satan is just an evil force. But there is a vast amount of scriptural evidence that Satan actually exists and that he is a person. Not a human being, but a person. For example, Satan's existence is recognized by every writer of the New Testament. Nineteen of the 27 books in the New Testament mention Satan by one of his names. Twenty-five times in the Gospels, our Lord Jesus Christ speaks of the reality of Satan. He is called the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the prince of demons, Lucifer, Satan, the old serpent, the great dragon, the evil one, the destroyer, the tempter, the accuser, the deceiver, and this spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Beloved, he is real, and he hates God, and he hates Christ, he hates the Holy Spirit, he hates Scripture, and he hates you, especially if you belong to Jesus Christ. He is so amazingly deceitful, and with his deceit, He destroys people's lives, Christian and non-Christian alike. Believe me, I have seen this so many times through the years that I often feel like I cannot take another situation of people believing his lies and suffering the destructive consequences as a result. It rips my heart right out of me. Satan is real, and he is our enemy. But we have another enemy. A second enemy we have is what the Bible calls the flesh. People often refer to this enemy as the sin nature or the sinful disposition or the old nature or the sinful human nature. It is called by a variety of titles. Whatever you call it, every honest Christian has to recognize that there is still something within that compels us to sin and pushes us to sin, and draws us towards sin. Satan is our external enemy, and the flesh is our internal enemy. The internal enemy is just as real, and just as powerful, and just as potent as our external enemy, Satan. 
Many years ago, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson who popularized the phrase, the devil made me do it. The fact is, the devil is real. And he certainly does tempt us to sin. But do you realize that if the devil were to evaporate and disappear this very moment, you and I would go on sinning? There is a sense in which you and I don't need any help to sin because we can easily do it on our own. The flesh prompts us to sin. The flesh motivates us to sin and incites us to sin. It moves us to sin. For example, when someone says something to you or does something to you that angers you, it's probably not the devil that prompts you to respond in a sinful way. Not at that moment. That's your own flesh. Something rises within you to encourage you to respond sinfully, and that is your flesh. The flesh is a real and powerful enemy. But we have another enemy, and it's all around us. The Bible refers to this enemy as the world. The flesh is the enemy on the inside. The devil is the enemy on the outside. And the world is the enemy that's all around us. When the Bible talks about the world being our enemy, it is not talking about the world of nature. The trees, the mountains, the wildlife, and the clouds are not our enemy. Those things are the marvelous creation of God, and they display the glory of God even though creation is under the curse of sin. So when the Bible talks about the world being our enemy, it is not talking about the world of nature. Neither is it talking about the world of people. People are not our enemy. The Bible is clear that we are supposed to love people just as God loves people. John 3.16 says, God loved the world in such a way that he gave his unique son, his only begotten son. People are not our enemy. Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not our enemy, but it is true that people are often victims of the enemy. That distinction is extremely important to understand. And frankly, there are many Christians who do not understand it, with the result that they hate and despise unsaved people. That's wrong. That's unchristlike. This often comes out in the realm of politics. Christians who are heavily involved in politics need to remember that those who are on the wrong side of the issues or the unbiblical side of the issues are not really the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. If you view them as the enemy, then it's easy for your attitude toward them to be wrong. You don't love them. You don't pray for them. You don't long for them to be saved because you view them as the enemy instead of as victims of the enemy. So when the Bible talks about the world being our enemy, it is not talking about the world of people. It is talking about the world system. It's talking about the system that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Holy Spirit, anti-morality, anti-godliness, anti-righteousness. The world system is a value system that is not eternally oriented. 
The world system encourages us to live for now, live for pleasure, live for self, disregard God, and disregard eternity. The world system propagates this message through a multitude of avenues. In fact, there are more avenues than ever in the history of mankind. Do you realize that, beloved? There are more avenues into your heart and mind today than there have ever been in the history of mankind. If Christians have always been encouraged, and they have, to not love the world and not be influenced by the world, if that has been true since the first century, it is even, in a sense, more true today. There is the education world, there is the entertainment world, and there is the technology world, just to mention a few. There are iPods and MP3 players and DVD players and Blu-ray players and computers and the Internet and cell phones and televisions and newspapers and magazines and books and you name it. The value system of the world and its message bombards us in this day and age in which we live. So it is a potent enemy. All three of these enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three of these enemies work together to deceive us, to inflict damage to our souls, and if possible, to destroy us. For example, the world system is a value system, and it's its own entity. It's one of our enemies, but behind it is Satan himself, another of our enemies. That is why he is called the prince of this world. That's why he is called the prince of the power of the air. That's why he is called the god of this age. He works through the system. He works to propagate his message, his values, his viewpoint. So they work hand in hand, the world and the devil. And both sources appeal to our flesh, which is our third enemy. So even though these three enemies are distinct, they are different, They interact together to form a powerful force against us as God's people. And beloved, let me warn you. If you do not take these three enemies seriously, you will experience at the very least, at the very least, defeat in your Christian life and usually much, much more. You will suffer the consequences of defeat and possibly enslavement which often in our day and age is called addiction. The Bible would call it enslavement. Enslavement, hurt, damage, pain, and sometimes even severe destruction. All three of these enemies are to be taken seriously. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now there are some passages of Scripture that specifically address our enemy Satan. And there are other passages of Scripture that specifically address our enemy, the flesh. But the passage to which we come this morning addresses our enemy, the world. So let's turn together to 1 John chapter 2, over near the end of the New Testament. Maybe just find the book of Revelation and go backwards a few small letters to 1 John chapter 2. In our continuing study through 1 John, we come this morning verses 15 through 17, but I want to invite you to follow along as I read verses 12 through 17, though we already covered verses 12 through 14 last Lord's Day. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I have written to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. The reason why I had us back up to begin reading in verse 12, even though we already looked at verses 12 through 14 in the last message, is because our text this morning, verses 15 through 17, our text this morning is closely tied or linked to what we saw in the last message. Let me explain the link. Verses 12 through 14 are a potent presentation of who a Christian is and what a Christian is. We are little children who know our sins are forgiven. We are little children who know God as our Father. We are fathers who have known Him who is from the beginning. We are young men who are strong and in whom the Word of God abides. We are young men who have overcome the wicked one. We have been victorious over the devil. That's who we are as Christians. That's a descri- All of those are descriptions of, of who or what a Christian is. That description of who we are as Christians forms the basis or the foundation for the exhortation that John gives in verses 15 and following about not loving the world. Here's the connection. Because we are different than the world and have been saved out of the world, we are supposed to be distinct from the world. Because we belong to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, because we belong to Christ himself, and because we have overcome the wicked one, we should love things that are eternal and not things that are temporary. That's the point. That's how this passage fits together. So with all this as background, let's see what the Holy Spirit prompted John to tell us about not loving the world. Notice verse 15. He says in a very straightforward and direct manner, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Remember, when John says do not love the world, he is not referring to the world of nature. He is not referring to the world of people. It would be a serious mistake to take this verse that way. John is talking about the invisible spiritual system of evil dominated by Satan and all that it offers in opposition to God, His Word, and His people. That is what the Holy Spirit is referring to in this verse. Do not love the world. John is not the only New Testament writer to give us this kind of warning or this kind of exhortation. For example, James 4.4 says this in even stronger language. It says, you adulterers and adulteresses, spiritually speaking, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is not suggesting that we should be unfriendly with people in the world. He is not saying that it's wrong to have non-Christian friends. 
We should have non-Christian friends so that we can be salt and light. But what James is denouncing is having the same value system as people in the world, the same love as people in the world, the same priorities as people in the world. As I've already stated, when the Scripture warns us about worldliness and tells us not to love the world, it is talking about having the same value system as the world and loving the things of this world the same way unsaved people love the things of this world. When our love is focused on food or drink or clothes or shopping or entertainment or things, there is something wrong with that picture that doesn't fit for the child of God. That is worldliness, and according to James 4.4, it is spiritual adultery for the child of God. When we as believers who are joined to Christ give our love to the world and not our love to Christ or our love to the Father, we are committing spiritual adultery. When the world or the stuff of the world is your best friend, you are committing spiritual adultery and you are putting yourself at enmity or hostility with God, says James 4.4. In fact, the last phrase of James 4.4 says that if you want the world to be your best friend, if you want this world, the value system of this world, the stuff of this world to be your best friend, you are making yourself an enemy of God. That is strong language. Why would James say it so strongly? Well, we should be able to understand this if we stop and just think about it for a moment. Think about a parallel or an illustration. We have all seen, and some in this room tragically have experienced, the enmity that comes in a marriage when one partner is unfaithful to the other. Think about how quickly that dynamic changes. What was once a close and loving marriage can quickly become a strained relationship of enmity in which the unfaithful spouse is actually acting like an enemy. Well, the same kind of thing happens spiritually. When we are unfaithful to the Lord... By pouring out our love on the things of this world, we put ourselves at enmity with Him, and we are acting like an enemy. We're not acting like we have a relationship with Him, a marriage, spiritual marriage with Him. So both James and John remind us this world is not our friend. The value system of this world is not our friend. It is an enemy of our souls, which is why Scripture warns us about loving the world. The last phrase here in verse 15 is such an insightful statement on the issue of worldliness because it tells us that the problem is a lack of love for the Father. Notice that. The last phrase of verse 15 says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, when a Christian has fallen in love with the world, it means he doesn't love the Father like he ought to love the Father. It means his love for the Father has diminished, it has dissipated, it has waned. His love for the Father is not what it ought to be. The love for the Father, love of the Father is not in him. The solution for worldliness then is to love the Father. That is so important to understand, beloved, because some Christians try to address the problem of worldliness simply by attacking it. I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to, and they make the list. That doesn't really address the issue. I've I've illustrated it this way in the past. Let's say you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden the oil light on your dash starts flashing. 
Let me tell you what to do. Take out a little hammer and smash out the oil light. Will that solve your problem? Obviously not. The red light is an indicator of the problem, which is no oil in the crankcase or low oil in the crankcase. If you put oil in the crankcase, the oil light will go off. In the same way, when a Christian loves the world, when a Christian is infatuated with the world, the problem is a lack of love for the Father. So when you see worldliness arising in your life, that should be a telling sign to you that you need to cultivate your love for the Father. Let me pause here to add another thought about worldliness or loving the world. And please hear this. Loving the world or worldliness cannot be identified by a list of specific do's and don'ts. This has been the tendency of Christians down through the years in in trying to attack worldliness. It comes out in a grocery list of do's and don'ts. That's not really accurate. For example, it would be wrong to say that buying a new car every other year is a sign of worldliness. Or spending $500 on clothes is loving the world. Or going to see a movie is being worldly. Or going to a dance is being a worldly Christian. Or buying jewelry is loving the world. Or, or getting new equipment for hunting is worldliness. Or listening to secular music is being a worldly Christian. Or whatever things that someone might list. These are often the kinds of things that are put in the list. Those things are not automatically marks of a worldly Christian. Though they may be the marks of a worldly Christian. What I'm trying to say is that worldliness is not simply an action or an activity. It is a heart condition. That is what makes makes the issue so difficult to address in a setting like this. And frankly, what makes it so difficult to address in our own lives. We can't just look at actions. We can't just look at activities We can't just look at externals, but at the same time, hear this, we have to look at actions. And we have to look at activities. And we have to look at externals because they can be a reflection of our hearts. So, it is possible for a Christian to be driving a new car and not be in love with the world at all. And it is possible for a person to be driving a 3-year-old car or a 10-year-old car or a 13-year-old car or whatever and be in love with the world. It is possible to be in a really nice house and not be a worldly Christian. And it's also possible to be in a shack and be a worldly Christian. And the same kind of thing could be said about many actions, many activities, many external things. A Christian may watch a movie because he enjoys seeing a story that is clean, wholesome, interesting, and compelling. Or a Christian may watch a movie because he enjoys immorality, nudity, vulgarity, and crass humor. A Christian may listen to some secular music on occasion because he enjoys a wholesome song about some aspect of life. Or a Christian may listen to secular music because he likes to hear about rebellion and sinful activities and thoughts that don't line up with the Word of God. So you see, you can't just make blanket statements about worldliness. You can't make blanket statements about loving the world. You can't say, going to the movies is loving the world. 
Going to a dance is worldliness. Buying nice things is loving the world. That may or may not be true, depending on a number of factors. And that is why John says, do not love the world. Notice what he says here. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Instead of saying, do not do things that could be worldly. He doesn't say that. Or, do not spend money on things that could be worldly. John doesn't say it that way by design because John goes after the heart. He is concerned about what we love. What is our focus? What is our motivation? What is our passion? What is the center of our lives? What drives us? Is it love for the Father or is it the things of this world? What drives you? What motivates you? What compels you? Listen, you could never watch a movie your entire life and still be a worldly Christian who is not passionate about the Lord. On the other hand, you could be a Christian who is focused and enamored and fixated and infatuated on the latest movie, the latest styles, the latest vehicles, and the latest creature comforts of life. So again, I say, that is what makes the issue of loving the world so difficult to address in a setting like this, and that is what makes it so difficult to address in our lives. It's very easy to make a mistake on both sides of this issue. To say it another way, there is a ditch on both sides of the road here. On the one hand, it is very easy to go overboard by saying all activities that take place outside of church are worldly. All activities that take place out in the world are worldly. That's not true. On the other hand, it's very easy to minimize the seriousness of loving the world by saying that Christians who make decisions not to do certain things are simply being legalistic. Now surely you have known Christians on both sides of this spectrum. There are those who think that it is worldly to do anything outside of the church. Oh, that's all worldly out there. On the other hand, there are those who say if you have convictions for not doing certain things or convictions for the way you live your life, well, you're just legalistic. Do you understand what I'm saying here, beloved? This is so crucial because it would be sad if we left this place without understanding what the Holy Spirit wants us to hear by this command, do not love the world or the things in the world. Look at your heart and try to be honest with the condition of your heart. Is your heart moved by and captured by and driven by a love for the Lord and His eternal purposes? Or is your heart focused and fixated on all the temporal stuff of this world? That's what it comes down to. That's really the issue, as we see by what John says in his very next statement, verse 16, he says this, for, and he, he has a for there because he's going to explain further, for all that is in the world, namely the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now here John helps us get a better grasp on what it is in this world that competes with our love for the Father. 
He mentions three specific aspects of what it means to love the world. Rather than our own lists, which we might create, John gives the specifics here. Three specifics of what it means to love the world. First, he mentions the lust of the flesh. This world appeals to our flesh. What does that mean? This world says we ought to live for pleasure. We ought to live for enjoyment. We ought to live for recreation. We ought to live for relaxation. And we ought to live for exciting events in life. That's what the world tells us. That is the purpose of life. That's why we should live life. The world opposes God's way of thinking by saying, you deserve these things in life. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves and in their proper context. But when these things become that which drives us and things we love and things we think we deserve and the things we pursue at all costs, we have just bought into the world's lies that appeal to our flesh. So there is the lust of the flesh. Second, there is the lust of the eyes. John says here in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. This is a reference to the things of the world that appeal to our sight. This world sets things before us as the supposed solution to our problems. Our world constantly tells us, especially in advertising, that the pursuit of things is the path to joy in life. Beloved, I hope you understand that one of the major purposes, I'm not saying the only, one of the major purposes of a lot of advertising is to make us discontent. If advertising can make you discontent, then you think you need this, whatever it is. You have to have this to be fulfilled in life, to be content in life. Our our world is constantly telling us that the pursuit of things is the path to joy in life. You need this thing. You deserve this thing. This thing will make you happy. This thing will make your life complete. That is the message of this world, and sadly, many Christians buy into it. Their lives revolve around things, and the pursuit of things, and the purchase of things. Do you realize how many Christians there are who use shopping or buying things as as kind of a drug for happiness? The numbers are staggering. This world is very good at appealing to the lust of the eyes. Then the third specific that John mentions is the pride of life. Now each of these is somewhat different. The lust of the flesh appeals to our feelings and our desire for pleasure. The lust of the eyes appeals to our sight and our desire for things. The the pride of life appeals to our ego and our desire for recognition. Now let me say that again. It's so important that we get this. The lust of the flesh appeals to our feelings and our desire for pleasure. The lust of the eyes appeals to our sight and our desire for things. The pride of life appeals to our ego and our desire for recognition. The world says, put yourself forward. Make people respect you. Don't let them treat you that way. You deserve better in life. These are prideful thoughts that are diametrically opposed to God's way of thinking. 
We don't push ourselves forward. We don't make people respect us. We don't demand respect and honor. We don't demand our supposed rights. We are not to assume that we deserve better in life. Now, again, there is nothing inherently wrong with being promoted. If you are good at what you do, you're a hard worker, you're diligent, a lot of times uh, that will be recognized, you'll be promoted, and that's something to thank God for. Nothing wrong with being promoted in life in whatever form. There's nothing wrong with having success in life. There's nothing wrong with people respecting us, honoring us. The issue, again, is our focus and our hearts. If we believe we have to have those things, if we, if we demand those things, and if we make those things our pursuit, we have succumbed to the world's philosophy on how to live life. Put yourself forward and make sure everyone respects you as the most important. We're not living God's way. We're living the world's way. That's what the last phrase of this verse means. It says, is not of the Father, but of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but is of this world. And then John closes this section with a reminder of how foolish we are if we are living life that way and are caught up in the things of this world. He says in verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. John says this to remind us about how foolish it is when we become fixated on this world, because this world and the stuff of this world is only temporary. It's all passing away. It's not eternal. Thus, when you neglect your relationship with the Lord and embrace a love for the world, here's what you're doing. You are trading something that is eternal for something that is temporary and passing away. That's a bad trade. Awful trade. All of these desires that men and women pursue, pleasure and things and recognition, will someday be gone. They are only temporary. Therefore, they should not be the focus and pursuit and drive of a child of God. These things should not be the things that compel us and consume us. After all, this verse says, as God's people, we are going to outlast all these things because we are going to abide forever. This world has no interest in the will of God. This world has no interest in doing the will of God. But we, the people of God, ought to be consumed with that goal. What does God want me to be doing in life? How does God want me to be living, functioning? That should be our, that should be our pursuit those whose lives have been transformed to love God and do the will of God will abide forever. That reality should affect and control how we live our lives here and now in this passing world. This world is not our home, beloved. It is not. We are only passing through. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven. 1 Peter 2.11 says we are sojourners, pilgrims. You've seen the, the guy walking with a stick over his shoulder and a little bag out on the end, a little sack. That's what we are as Christians. We're just passing through this world. We're sojourners, pilgrims. The focus of our lives should reflect that reality. We should live our lives loving the Father and doing the will of God, not loving the things 
of this passing world. Now, I said earlier that this is a difficult subject to address in such a diverse, to such a diverse crowd because everybody's heart's in a different place. And everybody's maybe tendency toward loving certain things is different. It's not the same for everyone. So it's very easy if I were to be too specific for you to say, oh, well, good, that doesn't apply to me because he didn't think of mine. He didn't mention my specific or whatever it may be. So I urge you, I encourage you from the bottom of my heart to take seriously what the Spirit of God says in these three power-packed verses and just say, Holy Spirit, show me where I have the tendency to love the world and not love the Father. That's what the Spirit of God wants us to take from this passage. So let's bow together and take a moment to do that. As you bow your head and close your eyes, And you think about this serious issue of the world. Because not only is Satan our enemy, not only is the flesh within our enemy, the world is our enemy. Not people, not nature, but the world system continually tries to erode our love for the Father to cause us to be focused on loving other things instead of loving the Father. So as you look at your life and try to be honest, try to ask the Spirit of God to help you be objective. Father, where where am I worldly? Where am I focused, fixated on things that are not eternal? Where have I allowed things like that to become too important in my life? And I've lost sight of eternity and that all the stuff of this world is going to pass away but only those who love you and do your will will abide forever. I encourage you to interact with the Father about how he has spoken in his word this morning. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, then understand God is not your Father. The Bible is clear on that. You need to repent of your sins, humbly ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, then you can call God your Father. And then you can love the Father as we're supposed to love the Father. Our Father, as we close this morning, your word is very clear on the seriousness of this issue. Not only 1 John 2, James 4, many other passages. And maybe this of all of our enemies is the most difficult for us to get a handle on. We can Maybe see in a better way that there is an enemy named Satan who tries to tempt us. He's evil. He wants to destroy us. And we can somewhat get a handle on the flesh within our sin nature, sinful disposition. We know that there's something there that still compels us to to do wrong, to think wrong. But when we try to get a handle on this concept of the world and the world being an enemy and, and not loving the world, it's... It's maybe more difficult for us, which is why it's almost easier for us to make a little short list and call it good. I won't do this, this, and this, and then I'm not worldly. But that that falls way short of what you want us to understand. So, Father, enable us, help us to, to really get a handle on, to grasp what you mean by these statements in your word, by what you mean by do not love the world or the things of the world, and 
the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these things that appeal to our pleasure or our sight or our ego. And our world has so many avenues to pump this value system at us. With all the technology today, it seems like we're, we're bombarded all around us. So help us, especially Christians in this century, to take seriously these warnings and these exhortations about not loving the world, about not allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold, to not be a friend of the world. Help us especially. Maybe, maybe it could be said that to us here in this century, these, these statements are even more important than they have ever been for any other generation of Christians. So enable us to understand, to respond properly, and, Father, to love you. Because when we love the world, it just shows that our love for you has waned, it has diminished, it has dissipated, and is not what it should be. So may your precious Holy Spirit, who indwells those of us who know Christ, cultivate a love for you that is strong, fervent, passionate, and therefore has an eternal focus. This is our prayer together in Jesus' precious name. Amen.